Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, why China matters, Justin Trudeau's mandatory vaccine double standard, and why the latest round of climate alarmism is a nothing burger. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome to another edition of Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show. It is Wednesday, August 11th, 2021. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show on True North, and I'm very grateful to have you on whenever you are listening, wherever you are listening. In the on tenterhooks awaiting election week, we are pretty sure now that the election call is going to be on Sunday, which means we are off to the races basically by Sunday afternoon. So, we can breathe a little bit easily. I actually realize I'm not normal, which you've probably figured out by now. I tend to like elections, and there's a reason for it. Number one, I'm a political wonk, and elections are newsy events. And also, it's the opportunity for Canadians to, in a very real and very direct way, tell the government what they think. More than polling, more than referenda, plebiscite, it's an opportunity for the voters to take out their frustration in a way that is very unique to liberal democracies. And that's why I'm not buying into, if you've heard the last few shows, this idea that, oh, it's too dangerous to have an election. We should welcome the opportunity to exercise our democratic right, whatever our frustrations are with this policy or that policy. This is all a long way of saying I'm ready to go, and I hope you are too. We have some great things planned at True North to cover the election. And if you want to contribute to that, please do head on over to tnc.news and click the donate button, and you can be a part of what is always a very expensive endeavor, as you may remember if you followed us in 2019, but very important because we know the mainstream media simply is not covering elections the way they need to, not talking about the stories they need to, and certainly not covering the issues and perspectives they need to, but we are here at True North. So now that I've gotten that out of the way, and I, I appreciate you indulging me here, I want to talk about what has become the big story of the week this week, is, which is China. Now, I've often said this needs to be the bigger story most weeks. China is not a friend. It's a country that is ready to bully its way around the world, is doing exactly that, yet has been given this legitimacy by the world because they say the right things. They talk about, oh, yes, we're partners in climate change and we're joining the liberal world order. Meanwhile, they are performing this massive neo-colonial takeover of the third world through the Belt and Road Initiative. They are also so keeping Canadians locked up with arbitrary reasons, no reasons actually, and doing this as a way to exert pressure to release Meng Wanzhou, as we've seen with the imprisonment of the two Michaels, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, and also Mr. Schellenberg, Robert Schellenberg, who is a bit of a different case, but again, someone who China has held without due process on charges of drug smuggling. And what's happened here which is very unfortunate, is that Schellenberg has been on appeal, sentenced to death. China has decided to throw the book and then some at him and sentenced him to death in a move that can only be interpreted 
as a response to Canada's imprisonment, uh, well, not even imprisonment, but Canada's prosecution and pursuit of extradition of Huawei CFO Meng Wanzhou at the request of the United States. And this is hostage diplomacy, but unlike what would normally happen in a case like that, Canada has, it seems, been doing very little about it. Apart from just, you know, finger-wagging every now and then, Canada has not managed to secure the release of Michael Kovrig or Michael Spavor, and now Michael Spavor is finding himself staring down the barrel of an 11-year sentence, which also includes deportation. Now, this is very key. We don't know if the deportation is going to happen at the end of the 11 years or if the deportation could be happening in the coming days, weeks, months. We just don't know. So there's an opportunity here, which China is very aware of, for Canada to get Michael brought home, which is exactly what he wants. I want to talk about the political implications of this because there are a great many of them, but I also want to delve into the human aspect of this because we view this case in oftentimes diplomatic terms, which it is. That's part of what it is. China is using Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor as weapons against Canada, as weapons against the West. But these are also two human beings who for more than two years have been kept without consular access for the most part, very minimal oversight, and I would also say very little transparency, no transparency in fact, about the nature of these ham-fisted, half-baked charges that China has put against them on espionage. We did get a message from Michael Spavor sent through Canada's ambassador to China, Dominic Barton, this morning at a press conference, which was very upsetting to hear, but I think necessary. Consular visit with Michael right afterwards, and uh, he wanted to send three messages. I explained uh, that we were very fortunate to have all of the international support in the uh, embassy in Beijing, as well as uh, here with us in, in Dandong, and he had three messages he wanted to send. One, thank you for all your support. It means a lot to me. Two, uh, I am in good spirits. And three, I want to get home. That much time in what I can only assume are horrific conditions, and he still is thanking Canadians and saying that he's in good spirits. I think the third point he raises is the most important one. He wants to come home. And listen, I know China's a bully. I know China cannot be trusted. I know China is the enemy of the West, the enemy of freedom. China is trying to establish itself as the global hegemon, and its ambitions have oftentimes gone unchecked, certainly by Canada. I can't guarantee that if Andrew Scheer had won the election in 2019, things would be different, or that Aaron O'Toole could secure their release. No one can make that promise when you're dealing with someone who is a lot more powerful than Canada in this and holding a lot more of the cards. But what I can say is that for Justin Trudeau to audaciously make this promise in 2015... And I want to say this to this country's friends all around the world. Many of you have worried that Canada has lost its compassionate and constructive voice in the world over the past 10 years. Well, I have a simple message for you. On behalf of 35 million Canadians, we're back. Remember that? Yeah. So for Justin Trudeau to make that promise that Canada's back in 2015, that should be met with something in the way of action. 
but rather than actually do the things that are necessary on the world stage, Justin Trudeau instead wants to go to India and play dress-up. He wants to pursue this ill-fated attempt at securing a seat on the United Nations Security Council. He wants to go and talk about gender-neutral budgeting around the world and have uh, gender transparency and gender equality in the NAFTA renegotiations. All of these things on the foreign policy stage that make Canada the laughingstock. Meanwhile, while two Canadians languishing, three Canadians in fact, but I think the case of, of the Michaels are different than the case of Robert Schellenberg. All the while, Canadians are languishing in detention in China with no success at getting them back. So how dare you look at Canadians and say that Canada's back when you haven't taken aim at the greatest threat facing Canada, which is the rise of China? I've often said that Canada has, the Trudeau government specifically, has a China-sized blind spot in its foreign policy, which I would also say has creeped into its domestic policy. Let's go through a couple of the highlights, if you don't mind. Remember this, Jim? There's a level of, of uh, admiration I actually have for China. Um, because their you know, basic dictatorship is allowing them uh, to actually turn their economy around on a dime and say, we need to go green as fast as we need to start, you know, investing in solar. I mean, there is a flexibility that I know Stephen Harper must dream about of having a dictatorship that he could do everything he wanted. Uh, that I find quite interesting. Ah, uh, yes, China's basic dictatorship allows them to get things done, to turn around their economy on a dime. Well, where's that efficiency when it comes to releasing the two Michaels? Or how about this one? So why is your government so reluctant to acknowledge China's possible faults in this pandemic? My job right now is to make sure that Canadians get the best support, the best protection, uh, and are able to get through this as best we possibly can. That means uh, getting the equipment that we need. That means uh, ensuring that uh, the cooperation and the collaboration on the international stage uh, is uh, done properly. Uh, that means focusing right now on today and tomorrow and how we're going to keep Canadians safe. There will be plenty of time uh, to point fingers, to ask questions, to draw conclusions, and to uh, make uh, uh, ensure that uh, there are consequences for uh, things that different countries may have done during this, uh, this, uh, this pandemic. Uh, right now, my job is to look out for Canadians. Ah, yes, that was at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic when we had a lot of evidence suggesting that COVID may have escaped from a lab, that China had been disingenuous or outright dishonest with its numbers, that China was complicit in allowing COVID to become as big a problem as it did, as early as it did. And what does Justin Trudeau say? He doesn't even mention China and says, well, now's not the time. We can point fingers later. Well, it's been, you know, a year later and that finger pointing still hasn't happened. Where has been the push to hold China to account? It hasn't been coming from Justin Trudeau. And of course, there's Patty Haidu saying that if you accuse China of giving wrong numbers, you're feeding conspiracy theories. And then we have all of the journalists, the blue check elites that said that uh, you are just a conspiracy theorist. If you talk about the lab leak theory before, well, that became the predominant theory in how COVID got into the world. But the reality is Justin Trudeau, despite claiming that Canada is asserting itself as this middle power on the world stage, has done not a darn thing 
to deal with China, which is not just an abstract problem, by the way. They have Canadians. They are holding Canadians. This is not abstract. This is very real. And for them to get up now and say, oh, we're deeply concerned and we condemn the sentence, it is a load of nonsense. Where have you been before now? That clip from Justin Trudeau saying, well, now's not the time. Well, the problem when you don't take those battles up early is that eventually you're left now just responding to these things. What has happened? Now, people say, oh, well, maybe he's playing some 3D chess. Justin Trudeau, 3D chess. Anyway. Oh, maybe, you know, he's doing, he's, he's trying to play it cool. He's not, not wanting to rock the boat. Again, where are the results to show that? Where are the results? Where's the success? Where's the victory? And as I said, I'm not claiming that Andrew Scheer would have done different. I'm not saying that Aaron O'Toole could have. But I can say that the way to do it, if it is going to be done, is not by prancing around the world talking about every issue that doesn't matter, ignoring the one that does, ignoring Xi Jinping's attempts to take over the world. But, oh, no, all they have to do is say, ah, yes, we're partners in climate change. And you know what? That's just like turning the knees of the Canadian foreign policy establishment to butter. No way they can stand up to China when they've got partners in climate. And we're going to be talking later on in the show with Mark Morano about what's happening on the climate front. Now, Aaron O'Toole, I've had some criticisms of how he's handled his campaign thus far. But one issue where he's been immensely and tremendously solid has been on China. He is the only one in Canadian politics talking about this. And more importantly, he's talking about it in the lead up to an election. After the sentencing of Robert Schellenberg to death and before the Spavor sentencing, just to contextualize it, Aaron O'Toole uh, basically put the Chinese Communist Party on notice. Before I start, I need to take a minute to comment on the news about our fellow Canadians, Robert Schellenberg and Michael Spavor. The denial of Robert Schellenberg's appeals must be seen for what it is. A foreign government planning to take the life of a Canadian for political reasons. The use of the death penalty is abhorrent, but to impose it for political reasons is inexcusable. We will be watching tonight's verdict, and we won't be alone. The Chinese Communist Party needs to know that the world is watching, and we will be asking tough questions. Canadians just enjoyed celebrating the amazing achievements of our athletes in Tokyo. I know how hard our athletes are training for Beijing, but we are approaching a point where it won't be safe for Canadians, including Olympic athletes, to travel to China. The outcomes of the Spavar and Kovrig cases will help us answer that question. And he also went on to say after that that we should be considering a boycott of the upcoming Beijing Olympics, a position that Justin Trudeau hasn't taken, a position that I would say the vast majority of Canadians would support because Canadians do care about this. And I, I'm, I'm always leery of the idea that foreign policy is going to win you votes in an election. I think it can on really hot button issues that are connected to diaspora in Canada, like, you know, Israel or Palestine. I don't know how many votes taking a tough stance on China is going to get you on foreign policy grounds. But Canadians are very aware of these problems, at least on economic grounds. Canadians are aware of what's happened to all of their jobs being outsourced to China. Canadians do care about human rights. So the Liberal government's refusal to call out the genocide against Uyghur Muslims is in fact a significant thing. 
when everyone else in the Canadian political establishment is saying, yes, this is a genocide, conservatives, Bloc Québécois, New Democrats, Greens, Independents, and the Liberals are saying, oh, well, I don't, I don't know. This was Mark Garneau's bold stand for human rights in the House of Commons. Mr. Speaker, I abstain on behalf of the Government of Canada. Mr. Garneau, abstention, abstention. Mr. Hardy. What was that about? Ah, uh, yes, Canada is back indeed. So if we are, as a country, not prepared to take on China, we are not really dealing with anything that matters. And this is why I get so annoyed with campaigns that tend to be about, ooh, this little boutique tax credit or this home retrofit credit or we're going to plant trees, we're going to do all... And none of this matters. None of this matters if you do not respect the rule of law. None of this matters if you do not have a place in the world that is actually relevant, that is dealing with the issues that matter. None of it matters if you are not protecting yourself against Chinese infiltration. China is doing an economic takeover of the West. China's doing an economic takeover of the global South. China is clearly not concerned with poking the bear, if you will. Not that we've established ourselves as a bear in the world stage by any stretch, but they're not concerned with rocking the boat by imprisoning Canadians. They're not concerned because we are inviting them in. Remember a few months back when we learned that we were still inviting the Chinese People's Liberation Army in to do military training. That's how we talk tough with China. We give them our military training. That's what we do. Is that what you do with an enemy? No. That's what you do with a friend. So while Canada insists on treating China as a friend, China continues to walk all over Canada, which is why I don't buy the crocodile tears from liberal politicians right now who claim they're just so heartbroken about these sentences that the Chinese regime is applying on Canadians when they have not done a single thing of substance to secure their release up until now. I'm not saying they haven't tried. I'm not saying they haven't, you know, had some stern warnings and some stern reprimands. And while they're sucking up to China on climate change, maybe saying, oh, by the way, by the way, the Michaels, no, you don't want to. Okay, yeah, no, we'll talk about that another time. Justin Trudeau wants to say that Canada's foreign policy motto is Canada's back. The actual one is that other line. Now's not the time. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. The three magic words we've all been longing to hear for basically a year and a half now, life after COVID. What's it going to look like? Well, that is a question that our friends over at secondstreet.org are answering in a new ebook, a free ebook addressing the key questions of the country. What can be done about rising government debt, long health care waiting lists, unemployment? Secondstreet.org's free ebook, Life After COVID, is available at secondstreet.org, and you don't want to miss that, so do go over and check it out. Let's talk a little bit about what that is looking like in the context of the election, though. We've been talking about vaccine passports and all of these pushes from local groups, some businesses to require governments to require them to demand vaccination from customers. It's a very weird thing in a supposedly free country and free society. Well, it's creeping into politics. Of course, we have Aaron O'Toole saying that uh, we can't have a campaign in the fourth Delta-driven wave or something like that. Now we also have the media basically uh, seeking vaccine passports from political candidates. Global News has inexplicably surveyed the five major political parties to ask them what they're doing to ensure their candidates are vaccinated. They sent a survey 
are the parties requiring vaccination? Are they verifying candidates' vaccination status? How many of their candidates are unvaccinated? And will they advise unvaccinated candidates to avoid certain activities like indoor unmasked gatherings? So they're basically asking the party to pony up the list of who's vaccinated and who's not so that the media can then start running all of these stories about, oh, well, the candidate in, you know, London, whatever, is not vaccinated, or, oh, the candidate in Scarborough, whatever is. I'm not talking about specific people, just, just in general. So I think it's bizarre. This is what journalism is now. But now the story has become that the conservatives and the liberals are not saying Yes, the conservatives and the liberals wouldn't play ball. They wouldn't tell global news about the vaccination status of their candidates. Normally, I'd say good for them. The problem here is that just last week, Justin Trudeau said this about public sector workers. For those who are hesitant to go and get their first doses and their second doses. That's why I've asked the clerk of the Privy Council, who is responsible for the federal public service, to look at mandatory vaccinations for uh, federal employees. And we're also uh, looking at federally regulated industries uh, to uh, encourage or perhaps even to mandate vaccinations for those industries. <laughs> so he, he's talking about, on one hand, mandating, mandating vaccinations from public sector workers for the federal government and even those in federally regulated industries while not even saying whether liberal candidates are vaccinated, which, I mean, they could do. Like, they won't even allow people who are pro-life to be running, so certainly they could mandate whatever they want because they clearly don't care about independence and individuality in their slate of candidates. But this is hilarious because even... So Justin Trudeau's approach would make vaccination mandatory for anyone working for Elections Canada... But apparently the Liberal Party is in a different category. As my late friend Kathy Shadel said, liberals, it's different when we do it. We had like three Liberal MPs in the span of a couple of hours this week announced they weren't running again. Uh, Will Amos, who... Well, we all know who Will Amos is. Karen uh, McCrimmon, someone else as well. I mean, they, the names don't matter. These are not well-known people. But but now I'm wondering, oh, maybe they didn't want to uh, play ball with the, the vaccination game and they knew it was coming down. Who knows? I have zero reason to think that. I'm just spitballing here. You got to have some fun with politics. But this is, I, I think, bizarre. Again, I don't care about which candidates are vaccinated and which ones aren't. I care about what they're going to do to ensure that Canadians who want to get vaccinated are able to, what they're going to do to ensure recovery after the pandemic. Pandemic, but this new sort of witch hunt that you can just judge a person instantly by their vaccination status is bizarre. The media is playing ball. The, the media loves vaccine passports. The media loves this idea of stratifying society, which means scarily that if a government does come and say we're going to do this, the media is going to be all over it. But we're not. We still stand up for freedom and individuality here on The Andrew Lawton Show. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Code red for humanity. Yes, that's what UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres says. We have the Atlantic saying it is just a catastrophe. It's grim. It's a crisis and it's caused by fossil fuels. Ah, that's the key part here. All of the people that are talking about the grave existential threat that climate change poses to humanity, 
They want to use that as justification to decimate what they call the fossil fuel sector, to decimate the oil and gas sector, a sector that in Canada is significant to the economy and is also on the cutting edge of dealing with a lot of these issues that they say are so grave. But that side of the story doesn't get told. One guy who never shies away from telling this story is Mark Barano. He is the author over at climatedepot.com and also of the great book Green Fraud, Why the Green New Deal is Even Worse Than You Think. Mark Morano joins me now. Mark, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Good to talk to you, Andrew. Happy to be here. Thank you. Now, the media is taking this as the big gloom and doom scenario. There's not really anything new in this. I mean, these are the same sort of predictions and, and extreme rhetoric that we've been getting for years from the IPCC. It's exactly the same recycled stuff from, going back to 1990 when they first started this. The best analysis I saw was just recently uh, written by a, sta a climate statistician, Dr. Matt Briggs, and he literally said that he thinks they all that they did between this report and the previous report is they, they put in a find and replace in the document and they put changed very likely to virtually certain. And what they've done is just come up with the most extreme scenarios and they're claiming it's plausible. In fact, over 50% of the claims in this report about doom are the outlier extreme model-based scenarios of doom. So this is the big difference between this and previous reports. They've just gone all in on doom. Yeah, one of the things we saw, uh, certainly in a, in a Canadian context, where a lot of my listeners are in the COVID pandemic, is that when you make a, a modeling projection and you go with this, the most extreme scenario and it doesn't pan out, people realize, oh, well, okay, maybe there's maybe we shouldn't put too much stock in modeling. But on, on climate, that hasn't happened yet, mainly because they keep making these projections just far enough out that they can't be proven wrong. And then when they are, well, they've already moved on to the next thing, so it doesn't matter. We've seen it over and over. In 1989, the UN issued the 10-year tipping point by which nations would be submerged unless we took action. NASA's lead scientist said oh, during the Obama was elected 2008, we had four years to tackle it. We have AOCs. My favorite was Prince Charles, the 100-year, 100-month tipping point. And then he counted down. And when he got to zero, he ended up putting like a 40, it's like now 2047, which he could still be alive given his royal genes with his mom. But they just keep either disregarding it or they just keep crossing it out and putting up a new deadline. So it's a, it's a, the report is quite simply a political lobbying document. That's all it is. The, one of the authors of the report, a lead author named Jim Cosen, who works with a, a what he calls a climate risk firm. Now, this is a lead author of the report selling climate fear through his own private group. It's called the Climate Service. His quote by the media was, I think this will help, this new IPCC report will help change people's attitude and hopefully affect the way they vote, unquote. So there you have it. This scientific report by the world's top scientists is literally in, 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 uh, labeled as a, a report to impact the way you vote. In other words, stop voting for climate deniers. This report will make you. We're going to scare you so bad. It really is crazy. And you're right, though, to point out, as you did earlier, it's not benign. These are things that politicians tend to be uh, very receptive to. Certainly the media is very receptive to this. And, and I want to talk a little bit about this, because in 2015, we had the Paris Climate Agreement, which in and of itself was fairly aggressive. And now as the UN heads toward uh, COP26 in Glasgow, the entire mandate seems to be based on, oh, yeah, Paris didn't go nearly far enough. Uh, one of the lines that they're one of the 
goalposts they're moving is, you know, to keep global warming from a two degree rise over pre-industrial levels to now 1.5. That's the, the target they're moving towards. And all of these basically will compel these governments that have decided to hitch their climate agendas to these uh, initiatives and to these reports to do some drastic, drastic measures. I, I know in, in the U.S. where you are, you've got the Green New Deal, which is being pursued in, in Canada. We've got a liberal government that uh, would basically just want to completely uh, rip up any shred of the oil and gas sector. What What is it that really is being called for here? Well, first of all, just what you mentioned, the 2015 Paris. If you remember, when that was signed and passed in that December, it was such a jubilee. The media, academia, the UN scientists, we had John Kerry praising it, President Obama, yeah. the French president, the UN chief. They basically said we solved the planet. When John Kerry signed it with his granddaughter, he said, future generations will look back upon this moment. Guess what? Six months after they did that, they, we had to save the world all over again. There's no criteria. This is an important point because you brought up the 2015. There's no criteria by which we've solved climate change. It's an endless cycle of always getting worse, always uh, getting more extreme. Just, just to go back to this, uh, this other analysis that just came out today, it's okay if you're wrong. You can be wrong for decades, but if you're always wrong, if you're right, if you're wrong in the direction the leaders want you to be, there's no cost. And we're seeing that all across the climate. In other words, you can make outrageously bad predictions, but no one calls you on it. But if you challenge one of those incorrect predictions, you are an evil denier and you'll be dethroned. Now, you asked me specifically what's in this report. Well, they are predicting mostly with the weather extremes they're going after. They're saying essentially that this is code red for humanity, first of all in temperature, but also in floods, hurricanes, droughts, tornadoes, storms. Now you might ask, well, wait a minute. You know, If you pay any rudimentary attention to the climate debate, you know that the storms, you know, extreme weather storms are not getting worse. So how do they get around that? Even this report acknowledges no increase in global floods, droughts, hurricanes, tornadoes, strong winds. They're trying to say there's an increase in extreme precipitation and some heat waves. But here's how they get real fear, Andrew. When current reality fails to alarm, they just make scarier and scarier predictions of the future. So that's the classic misdirection of the whole climate debate. You, even Let's take a look at polar bears. And by the way, polar bears are, are, have rapidly disappeared from the entire climate debate. But polar bears are at or near historic population highs. They've never counted this many. They're all over the Arctic. They've, you know, new studies showing that they've thrived in much warmer periods than they're even, you know, the most dire scenarios are predicting as a species they've survived. There really is nothing to be alarmed about with polar bears. So what do they do? They make scarier and scarier predictions of dire conditions for the polar bear, and they'll say it's worse than we thought. You're like, how is it worse than we thought? There's more than ever. They're thriving. And their answer is our predictions of 100 years are now much more dire than they were just a year ago. This is like the heart of an IPCC report. Uh, in terms of temperature, they talk about this 1.5 C degree temperature goal. Here's the con on that. We know from the ClimateGate emails that that was quite literally pulled from thin air. It's a political statement 1.5 c was selected has no scientific merit whatsoever it's just a number that they can have the public latch onto to justify all of these draconian regulations 
Yeah, and it's baffling, too, because these people are completely unconcerned with economic harm. I, I remember earlier on in the pandemic when you had those critical points where no cars were on the road and you had the talk of the Great Reset and, oh, well, this is going to be great and it's going to be great for the climate. And, well, yeah, because, you know, no one is working, no one has jobs, there, nothing is open. And, and even now you've got countries like Tuvalu and Tonga that are saying, oh, yeah, we're going to be underwater in, you know, like three minutes if you don't uh, uh, do all this. And then you've got uh, company, countries like the United States now under Biden that are, are going along with this. And... and like, I mean, they, they have to know they're signing the death warrant for industry in their country. So why go along with this con, as I think you've aptly characterized it? It's because, of, first of all, it's a beholden to an ideology. Now, let's take Joe Biden for answer. Why is he going along with this? Here's what Joe Biden inherited. And this is just shocking when you look at this. President Trump left office. American had not only achieved energy independence, which had been the goal of every all five previous presidents, at least since Jimmy Carter and the energy crisis in the 1970s in the U.S., but we had energy dominance in the United States. For the first time since Harry S. Truman was president, 1952, we had more energy production than consumption. For the first time since Eisenhower was president, we had more energy exports than imports. We were the world's largest producer of oil and gas. President Biden comes in, day one, Andrew, slaughters the, the pipeline, slaughters drilling on federal lands, starts going after fracking, the death of a thousand cuts. We suffer this colonial pipeline. We have gas lines reminiscent of the 1970s. So what is the Biden administration doing now? One thing they're saying is climate change is a national security threat, is the gravest existential threat. No, their climate policy is the greatest national security threat in the U.S. Because what they've done, they're going after uh, they're, they're actually begging. President Joe Biden's administration is begging OPEC to increase oil production. As we shut down in the U.S. domestically, we're begging Middle Eastern oil to increase. Secondly, Russian oil imports are at or near record highs, the highest they've been in about 15 years and near record highs in the United States. So we're more reliant on Russia. Third, we now have, well, there's actually going to be four points, but third, we're now more reliant on China for mining rare earth metals, metals using slave labor in China and uh, human rights violation labor in Africa. And then this is, this is the fate of what we're doing. And he's doing this because his platform was written by the Sunshine Movement, by AOC, by Bernie Sanders. So the Biden administration just sold out to these radical activists that would make the Obama administration blush. The Obama administration looks like an America first climate plan when you compare it to President Joe Biden's climate plan. Well, yeah, I mean, look at one of Biden's day one priorities when entering the White House to yes. scrap the Keystone uh, Pipeline project from Canada, a pipeline that uh, had much of it already in the ground. And doing that, and I, I, I'm up against this with Canadian anti-oil activists all the time, it doesn't reduce the demand. All it does is shift the supply to these, you know, third world dictatorships. And, and again, it, it doesn't actually reduce overall consumption. It's just mind boggling. But this is the state of where we are. This is what the, my book, Green Fraud, is all about. It's just we've taken logic and science and technology, and we've turned it all on its head for this insane agenda that's going to hammer uh, America and Canada first. Well, and that is a great book, Green Fraud, Why the Green New Deal is Even Worse Than You Think. And I always make sure to uh, check out what you're writing on a day-to-day -day basis at climatedepot.com as well. Mark Morano, thanks so much for coming on. It was great. Thank you, Andrew. Appreciate it. 
That was great. Very, very necessary. And again, as we hear from all these politicians, and I'm sure we're going to be hearing in the campaign as well about this dire existential threat. We know Justin Trudeau is going to be citing this IPCC report to tell us why we all have to pay more and use less and all of that stuff. But again, this is nothing new and it's also not even true. We've got to wrap things up there. My thanks to you all for tuning in to the program, Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, God bless, and good day. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.